Welcome back to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. It's hard to predict the future, uh, as we all know, uh, but um, where, where will we be in five years from now? Um, Joe, what do you think? What, what will change? Well, you know, regarding the adoption of, um, you know, TAVI uh, and, and the adoption of uh, surgical AVR, um, I think we'll slowly but surely have a little bit more um, adoption of, of TAVI. Um, but if you look at uh, the trends and, you know, this is a podcast and I like to always be able to give the, 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 the listeners some serious uh, information that they haven't ever heard before. Uh, when you look at the, the data, the real hardcore data, um, what happened with the adoption in the United States anyway, is, is that at, at, each, uh, uh, at each indication expansion of TAVI, uh, there was an there's an increase in the number of, of patients, but for that year or so, so say for example, intermediate was was uh, intermediate risk was approved. It went it went up, and then it plateaued until low risk, and then it goes back up at low risk. So we got about another year uh, in the uh, big databases uh, where low risk uh, adoption will be a little bit steeper, but it's gonna it's gonna settle out uh, uh, until we have another indication expansion concept. Uh, and this is just kind of how it works. Uh, and uh, so I think we're gonna continue to have it, but I think uh, the only thing that's gonna increase it much further after say for a year from now is gonna be uh, some sort of uh, technology improvement that's gonna allow us to uh, treat lower risk patients without as much pacemaker, without as much paravibular leak uh, and be able to treat a bicuspid a little bit better. Uh, those are the three big areas that need to be improved by the platform, uh, as I say. Well, where, where, what will happen with surgery then? Is it, is it going Well, you down? know, I mean, it's very interesting. Um, uh, the surgical volumes for aortic valve across the whole universe of AVR have remained relatively stable, just a little bit down. Isolated AVR is down, you know, 30%. But AVR others and AVR cabbages and especially aortic root procedures uh, and double valves, more, more, more complex procedures, they're all on the rise. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, it's just that cardiac surgery from a valvular standpoint is going to change a little bit, but I've been, you know, surprised and that, that the, that the total, total uh, kind of universe of AVR hasn't gone down that much. Right. And, and even then, uh, so there, the prediction is that in five years from now, uh, the market penetration uh, will still only be about 65%. Um, what, what is the reason? So in total AVR landscape, so a surgical AVR and, and TAVR. So there's still a lot of patients that are not treated. Uh, Morel, any any idea why, why that is? Everybody has heard about aortic stenosis. You would think... There's a, it's always, a, there's always a denominator problem. We, we just don't know the denominator of patients unless we, you know, did uh, routine systematic echoes on everybody uh, as soon as they uh, hit their 60s or something. Um, but I think uh, uh, for sure, the uh, communication, knowledge, translation, these things are very important to trickle down to uh 
primary care physicians, not just cardiologists. I don't think there's a cardiologist or a cardiac surgeon in the world who doesn't know how to manage uh, an aortic stenosis, but it's getting down to primary care so that we actually see those patients who initially, you know, and it's for sure 10 years ago, many patients were just said, you know, were, were told, I'm sorry, you're just too old, too frail for sur surgical intervention and we'll have to palliate you. And uh, those numbers have changed. As Joe said, the total number really has expanded, but we do need to do more to get the message out to primary care. Right. So, Bob, uh, you know, a patient who is, uh, let's say, 82 years old, has uh, hip problems and knee problems, you know, walking is difficult, sitting in a wheelchair <clears throat> and um, has you, you, you diagnose them with aortic stenosis. Um, what, what would you do? Is, is there is there still a need for treating the aortic valve stenosis or, or would you then leave it? I think that's a, a kind of a, a situation that we are confronted a lot these days as more and more patients are now uh, actually diagnosed because now they know that there's treatment for it. So we have got a lot of elderly patients that in that particular kind of similar type of history that get referred to. I think the main thing to assess a patient like that is how does that aortic stenosis interfere with his quality of life? If the individual is completely non-ambulatory due to his hip, or is his hip being not being addressed because of his aortic stenosis? So because they're worried to really potentially do an intervention on his hip because of the aortic stenosis. So these individuals, I think, if they're properly assessed and if they're discovered that, yes, they actually would do well if the aortic stenosis is intervened, and then, then they can have their hip uh, uh, kind of fixed, so then they can resume back at least a quality of life. So these are the individuals that I think would definitely benefit from such technology. For elderly, you want to do a, 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 an intervention that is uh, least invasive so the recovery is faster. And if they're non-ambulatory right now, we know that post-surgical AVR, if they're non-ambulatory, their post-operative rehab will be extremely challenging. So I think this group of patients, once assessed and found that they definitely have a reason why uh, AVA in transcatheter valve would be beneficial, I think it would be extremely helpful. So these group of patients definitely should be considered for this intervention. Right. A any patient, Joe, that, that you think should not be treated? The type C cohort that we have discussed also in the past. Yeah, uh, you know, cohort C was a, um, uh, was a term that was um, identified back in partner one. Uh, and um, uh, the what it really refers to is not what you just said, which is a relatively reasonable patient who's who's got an orthopedic issue, but somebody who has truly uh, a high STS score, you know, and um, and has a, a less than a one year life expectancy. I think that the kind of the bioethics of aortic valve replacement in both Saver and Taver has come around to the point where if you don't have a one year survival, then you probably uh, should. That's what a cohort C means. Uh, and. Um, so that's an important concept because we put back in, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, we were putting in a lot of patients that, that were cohort C. We've stopped doing that now. Uh, and that's been a real, a real positive, actually, I think. Um, so I, I think that there's a, the big distinction is, as Bob was just talking about, a patient who is a good patient who happens to be in a wheelchair because of their hip. Uh, that's a great uh, that's a great situation because you you break the uh, the vert, you know the the, uh, the the curve because what happens in the old days well okay you have aortic stenosis so you can't really get your hip replaced but you're you're too frail to get an AVR well that doesn't exist anymore you get a tavern and you get your hip placed or, or vice versa so it's a different 
it's a, it's, that's a different patient, but if you don't have a, a one year life expectancy, that's what kind of what cohort C is. And I think we're getting better at, at uh, diagnosing cohort C. Great. And, and so the, the 35%, uh, could that also be addressed by a different technology uh, morale or, or what should change the technology? They have become smaller, the devices, um, you know, easier to implant. Um, what should change now? Well, uh, certainly um, we know if we are able to implant in a transfemoral uh, route, it's uh, easier on patients and they do and they do better. Um, smaller access and um, uh, smaller, smaller access for valve implantation. Um, I think on the older uh, age cohort uh, group, we're doing pretty well. It's actually the younger cohort with longer life expectancy where I find the technology not uh, not adequate, to be honest. Um, I think think, you know, the uh, having a class one recommendation in the guidelines for a 65 year old uh, based on not based on without having long term data available, uh, in my opinion, was uh, was premature. You know, we didn't have um, we had very few patients who are 65 in the low risk trials. And if we're looking for a 20 year result, but the data only is robust up to five years, in my opinion, that was uh, premature. Um, and really, the other thing to talk about is uh, what happens in patients who we do think will need a second valve. And so are we going to, and, and here the technology has room to improve as well. Um, you know, patients who are starting with a small annulus, who get a, a small surgical stented valve, and then a, 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 an, in, in, um, an inadequate TAVI after that. You know, if you're putting a, a small valve, you're leaving them with PPM and they, we know they're not going to do well. So I think this cohort we really have to think about and treat uh, better in the future. So you touched upon the guidelines, which is interesting. So the guidelines, the US guidelines said, you know, between 65 and 80, you know, you have to discuss it with your patient, what the patient wants, um, give them all the options. And then the patient decides, why is that not a good, why would that not be a good strategy? Well, no, I think it's um, reasonable to discuss it, but a Class one recommendation in my mind shouldn't come with uh, limited long-term data in a 65-year-old where we, where we have where we're looking for 20-year results, and there none of the trials had age as a criteria, and so all of a sudden to have age as a cutoff in the trials, the default is that, you know, now every 65 year old who's coming for an aortic valve assessment uh, should be offered or considered TAVI. And there's, you know, quite a push for that. Um, and I don't think the data actually supports that. Good point. So Bob, uh, the European guidelines just appeared, you know, a month ago, they have 75 years of age in the guidelines. And to Morale's point, you know, there's not a trial that showed, you know, what the cutoff age should be. Is that better to have 75 instead of 65 as a cutoff point? So well, I mean, it's over 75, it should be, you know, considered TAVI as a strong, as a kind of recommendation and under 75 surgery. I think that the higher age is definitely, it's been better specifically for providing more appropriate care for patients because occasionally, unfortunately, this destructive technology does cause uh, 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 you can say application of this particular uh, treatment to individuals that probably are, is not appropriate. And I think the younger group are the group of people that are lower risk, which is bicuspid valve, dilated ascending aortas. Those are the ones that are very, very, I think, important to make sure that they get the appropriate treatment. And even though 
we try to strive with a hard team approach. Unfortunately, not all institutions are like that, as we all know. Some institutions, unfortunately, it's, it's less of an input from the surgical, you can say, uh, uh, division. And hence, uh, our cardiology colleagues, they prefer to basically treat them transcatheterized. So I think that's something that we need to be uh, very cautious of. And I think the higher age, it's 75, at least prevents some of these inappropriate applications of uh, the utilization of, 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 of TAVI. Because in those group of people, I think definitely TAVI is most beneficial. Right. So, so Joe, you were involved with trial design, et cetera, specifically for, for the partner studies. And everybody's talking about age. Is that justified now? Or did you do something wrong with the trial design? Should you have taken age more as an yeah. important factor? Yeah, it, it is interesting that, uh, you know, Catherine Otto and the, uh, and the, uh, the writers of the guidelines, as well as the European guidelines that just came out, kind of both went towards age, uh, especially the American guidelines, um, or even more so uh, than the European guidelines. Uh, I tend to think that uh, that uh, both guidelines have their, uh, you know, they're pretty positive, I think, uh, in a sense that they're kind of up, more up to date. Um, so I think the 75 thing that you were talking about is a reasonable, uh, is very reasonable. That's the European guidelines. Um, I think when, if you look at the 65 to 79 year old age group, which is that in between age group that the American guidelines recognizes. Um, when you really look at it closely and, and look at all the, um, you know, the, the, the areas that are asterisks, you know, like bicuspid uh, uh, and uh, basically all both sets of guidelines have basically kind of tarnished uh, alternate access completely. Uh, and that uh, if, you, if you need an alternate access, you should probably just get a regular AVR. Um, so that's kind of uh, both guidelines have talked about that, especially the American guidelines were really solid on that or not solid, but, but emphatic. Um, so I, I think the, I think that they had the, they had the both sets of guidelines kind of had to simplify it and they simplified it by making it age. I, I think that's what it comes down to. Even though the prospective randomized trial data was based on risk, uh, you know, the risk uh, categorization with the STS risk scores, as well as the TVT uh, TAVR risk scores, which are a little bit different, uh, which is maybe a little too complicated uh, for, for uh, you know, you know, ubiquitous application across the world. Uh, so I think that's the reason why they went where they went. Uh, and it's probably legit. Uh, so I'm kind of I'm kind of uh, OK with it. Now, the one thing that I think is important and it gets back to your question originally about you know, the 35% are, are, are trying to get to more patients with AS. If you look at the guidelines for AS, and, I, and, and, and listen, this, this conversation needs to talk about AI as well. But uh, if you look at the, uh, the indications for surgery uh, or, or aortic valve replacement of some sort, uh, the guidelines, both sets, have really expanded the, guide, the, the application of, uh, of, of therapy, so to speak, uh, in aortic stenosis. There's a whole bunch of different new categories that if you look at it closely, you know, increases the pool of aortic stenosis patients that should be treated. It's, it's, it's something you need to look, you need to look at pretty closely. It's, it's actually astounding to, if you really look at the guidelines, both sets, um, very, very closely. Well, maybe for example, the asymptomatic ones. Asymptomatic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Is, is that uh, a good, is that a good, good way? Is that a good way to go in that, that direction? I think so, because the data is, is getting stronger and stronger uh, that, uh, that aortic stenosis is a bad disease, okay? Uh, especially when it has high velocities and is getting worse. You know, if you look at the guidelines, if you have a high velocity or if it's getting worse pretty quickly, uh, I'm not going to go into the details, but it's but uh, both sets of guidelines uh, have this uh, very, very well outlined. Um, you know, it's a bad disease. Patients, you know, die. If you look at the recovery trial uh, out of Japan that was presented at the American Heart, 
that's that's like dramatic. OK. Uh, and also, if you look at it closely, it's also dramatically good for for surgical aortic valve. Um, so um, I, I think that no, data is rolled in. That yeah. that data has come in very strongly and, and the guidelines adapted to it. So, but Bob, now I'm now I'm um, you know 70 years old and I have an aortic stenosis, and the doctor tells me this is a very aortic stenosis, but I don't have any symptoms. And now you say, okay, I'm going to operate on you. I, I will have symptoms after the operation, will or not? <laughs> well, I will have pain. I, I will may, may have a stroke or. or... <laughs> I think that the data on that yet, I assume. I, will hopefully become a bit stronger. Uh, the, the asymptomatic trial is still ongoing. I know that we're recruiting over here. Uh, I think that that's still an area that we need to have a bit more data to 100% say yes, maybe in asymptomatic people with severe aortic stenosis, maybe it'd be beneficial to be kind of, uh, you can say, uh, proactive and do something sooner as Dr. Bavaria has already mentioned. Uh, aortic stenosis is definitely not a, a, a kind of a disease that you can just basically forego. But I think uh, in terms of offering surgical AVR for an asymptomatic patient, I think that definitely that is not presently enough data for that, uh, uh, specifically with that replacement, uh, because there's still risks associated, even though risk is still low, there's still risk associated with that. And if the individual is asymptomatic, I think watchful observation is the way to go. But of course, with Taver now here in Tabby's, I think that that may change. I think there's more data that needs to be uh, kind of uh, uh, available before we can change that particular data. And, and the trial that you refer to, Bob, is, is a trial that looks at asymptomatic patients treated with transcatheter aortic valves. Yes, either they undergo two arms, they either get uh, basically watchful observation, yeah. conservative management, or TAP. Yes. But not surgery. Not is surgery. That, is that correct? Is that justified? That well, I guess I guess you're right. Uh, to be appropriate, you could have done a third arm to see to see whether what would happen. But I guess I think the primary purpose for that is uh, this is again industry run trial, hence they want to try to uh, further push the uh, the utilization of the device in individuals who are asymptomatic if they can find that there's a benefit in it. But I agree that would have been most beneficial if we also had a surgical arm uh, available in that particular trial. Right. I, I actually, I mean, based on the recovery trial, the hazard ratio for death in the long term was it, it had quite a dramatic effect. It was like 0.33. So uh, your risk of dying with asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis is not trivial. And so I show that data to patients and I say you do, of course, if you have surgery, you could have a complication and so on. Um, but this is the natural history of really severe critical aortic stenosis is not benign. I, I wish that trial had a surgical arm we're, we're recruiting in it as well but um uh, patients are more likely to sign up for something especially if they're asymptomatic if it's transcatheter versus uh, medical therapy but um there should be more robust data in the asymptomatic uh, cohort I, I do think in the end we will see a benefit to intervention well you know so, i think it's very important to for the for the listeners of this podcast to understand that both sets of guidelines regarding asymptomatic aortic stenosis do not actually uh, advocate AVR for asymptomatic aortic stenosis except under certain conditions. And that's where they really get down into the deep details. If you have a, if you have a velocity over 4.5 centimeters, if you have a growth, I mean, a, um, a velocity increase of 0.3 uh, uh, meters per second per year, uh, if you have X, Y, Z, so it's all if, 
But if you look at those ifs, it, it ends up being a lot more patience. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at Medtronic.com slash Cardiac Exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content. 